Hey everyone, welcome back to Blessed Child Podcast. This is your host, Ren. As promised, I have interviewed the ICSA sponsor, Bob Capellini, who turns out to be a legend. Stick around and find out about what we speak on, which involves early deprogramming in the 1970s, the formation of the Cult Awareness Network, brainwashing, my blessing experience, and so much more. The stories, perspectives, theories, and viewpoints shared on this podcast are of this speaker and do not reflect on any uh, organization. So enjoy, listen to this deep dive. Here we go. My name is Bob Capolini, and I have four kids and uh, one son named Steve was also in the Unification Church, 1978. And uh, that goes back a few years, probably before you were born, Renee. Yes. My, <laughs> yes. Pa- my parents were in the movement at that time, joined okay. then. Okay. So he was, uh, had graduated from high school. He was taking college degree. He finished one semester. And uh, he was uh, always looking and searching for something. And uh, at an earlier age, he was wondering, why is there anything? Why is there people? Why is there a universe? And all these kind of deep questions that I can't answer. <laughs> and uh, he, we, we, he went to Sunday school and stuff, but still wasn't the answer. So he kept searching. And he wound up hitchhiking from Miami to California. Wound up in Los Angeles, or not San Francisco. And there a group of young people uh, took him out to dinner and invited him to their place a little north, 100 miles north of San Francisco in the boonies. And and very appropriately, the town was called Booneville. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of interesting. And uh, then he called us and told us this group of young people, you know, befriended him and they're feeding him and housing him and we were glad I was glad he was off the road finally he was hitchhiked all the way from Miami to San Francisco so and after we hung up I said boy to my wife my late wife she's been passed now eight years I said boy isn't this great he's off the road and my wife said there's something wrong. You ladies have a way of detecting something when something's amiss. <laughs> and she knew, she knew there was something wrong. I said, what could be wrong? She said, you just wait, let's see what happens. And, I, and he would call us every week, Friday, and finally he told us it was the Unification Church, Reverend Moon. And uh, I read one part of one article one time about Reverend Moon, I knew it was negative. So I looked it up and sure enough, all the thing about brainwashing and that kind of stuff came up. And I, next time Steve called, I said, hey, that's a bad outfit. Oh, that's a bunch of malarkey, you know. You know. <laughs> uh, it's a great people and that's the thing. You're all great people. People have a hard time understanding that. You're, Moon took advantage of your dreams and used you and manipulated your brains to think that he was the new messiah. Well, anyway, we uh, 
That went on for a few months. And uh, finally, it came close to Christmas in 78. And he would be said he would be willing to come home for Christmas. We're, we're in Tampa, Florida, so he's in San Francisco. And uh, by this time, we had contacted a deprogrammer. You know the name of the man who coined the word deprogramming? No, who? Ted Patrick. Ted that, Patrick. I've heard that he, name. He's a black gentleman. His son was kidnapped, not kidnapped. He was taken over by a cult. And uh, Ted went to a couple of meetings. He could see what was happening. <clears throat> they were trying to take him over mentally also. So he got his son out and he started deprogramming people. And uh, we got a whole, at that time in 1978, there was a network of people like us underground contacting each other about what happened to their loved ones, how they got in cults. And then we were put in touch with a man in Florida whose daughter was in the Moody's and he got her out. So he gave us very wise advice. He said, stay in contact with your son. Do not argue with him. Do not start a fight with him because you need to keep in contact. If you anger him too much, boom, you'll never hear from him again. They'll move him and they, they won't know where he was. That's the best advice he could give us. So uh, we did that and in 1978 in November, a thing called Jonestown happened. Yes. You know what Jonestown is? There was a man named Jim Jones who started a cult in San Francisco. And uh, destructive cults the same way. There's a leader that claims to be some kind of God and everybody outside doesn't understand. You're no good. And stay away from them. Even if they're family, stay away. The same thing, Renee. It's the same thing in every cult. Uh, little variations, but they believe in different things. Anyway, he moved them all, his people, over almost a thousand people to South America, to Guyana. And have you heard this story? This is the infamous Kool-Aid story. Yes, the Kool-Aid story, okay. That happened in November 78, just about the time we're planning to rescue Steve. Boy, did that motivate us. Wow. Because some of the same things happened in that Jonestown that has happened, I mean, as far as brainwashing, at one time, we were deprogramming Steve, and I was reading something from a cult, from the Mooney archives, and it said, uh, wouldn't it be great to die for Moon? Yeah. And I said to Steve, would you die for him? And he said, well, at this time, he was just on the edge of getting out. Well, Dad, if he was a messiah, and I broke down, okay. That's what enabled us, one of the things that ate, enabled us to get him out. We were at that time in Denver, Colorado, deprogramming Steve. Wow. Yeah, the story about my getting Steve, the kidnapping, that takes another few minutes. I don't know if you have the time. Oh, that's fine. Um, my, my dad actually got kidnapped and uh, attempted deprogramming. And he's mentioned the name Ted Patrick before. So I wonder how much uh, history overlaps with this. And I'm very interested in hearing. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, I was still working at the time. And uh, luckily, I had a boss. I, I shared the news with him. And he said, take, take as much time as you need. Okay, you'll have a job when you come back. Wow. So I left. At the time, I was uh, working. I arranged a trip to California so I could be in California to get to San Francisco to uh, get a hold of Steve. And by this time, we were in touch with Ted Patrick. And then we got, I got to California and my wife called and said, Steve is in uh, Denver now. Oh, the Moonies, you know, they, they, they were getting the feeling that we were going to do something. So they shipped them overnight. They just went to Steve, hey, pack your bag. You're going to Denver now. And, uh, but he, as soon as he got to Denver, he called. He called my wife and said, I'm in Denver. And uh, good for him. The one thing we had, the best thing was uh, the, the advice the man gave us don't fight with him, don't argue. The other thing was we had love, a strong love between all of us in our family. So they couldn't break that. So he called my wife. So I told Ted Patrick, hey, no problem. I have friends in Denver. He said, uh, I'll meet you in California and we'll have a plan. Okay. So I was in a hotel at 10 o'clock at night, knocking the door to Ted Patrick. He said, uh, I'm Ted Patrick, and tomorrow morning a young man will be with you, and you will both fly to Denver, and we'll have a plan when we get there. And that was it. Next morning, this young man comes to my door. We, we go to the airport, get on a plane. Boom, we're in Denver. And uh, my son, Anna Mooney, met us at the airport. And Ted Patrick says, do whatever the Mooney says if there's another Mooney with him. So he, I told him what uh, hotel we're going to be at. And uh, I rented the car, and drove to the hotel, and that Mooney showed up along with Steve was with me just to make sure that we went to that hotel. And <laughs> the fellow that flew with me, he said, I'm going to register in the hotel as Mr. Smith. So you call me and we'll have a plan. So now I'm in the room. How do I call this guy? Uh, so I, Steve, would you go out and get me a newspaper, please? I need to keep up with the news. So Steve said, okay. He went out. I got the phone. Mr. Smith, what's the plan? He says, well, another man's going to join me today. And tomorrow we'll have the plan. Call me tomorrow. So. Oh, no. Okay, next day, Steve, give me a newspaper. Okay, bang, boom, plan. Okay, uh, get on this uh, expressway on the side on this entrance number so and so in Denver, and uh, we, this fellow and I will be there hitchhiking. We'll tell you that my brother's uh, in sick, and we had to get to his house, and my car broke down. And that's why I'm hitchhiking. Please take us to my brother's house. So now we have to figure out why I have to be on that freeway at a certain time. So I <laughs> asked Steve, Steve, I said, let's go downtown Denver. How are we going to get there? We get the map out. He said, well, Dad, you look like you get on this freeway. Oh, okay. On that ramp? Yeah, okay. So we get on the ramp. Now I'm looking. My heart's beating, you know. And... Uh, we get on the freeway, and it's a long, one of those long ramps. It seemed like it went about seven miles. Oh, wow. I get up to the top, and I don't see anybody. Oh, no. So I start giving the gas, and out of the corner of my eye, I see two guys 
on the side. They don't want to be hit, hit picked up by anybody. They want to be picked up by me, right? So they didn't want to be too apparent. So I said, Steve, look, there's two boys hitchhiking there. And I, you told me you hitchhiked all the way to California from Miami. And if you see guys with, with backpacks, they're okay, because that's what you were. Oh, okay, Dad. Yeah, really? <laughs> yeah. So I pulled over, and one guy gets in the back, one guy gets in the front, puts Steve between me and him. And the guy gives me the story about his brother being sick. You have to go to the... And he gives me the address. This guy had never been there before. <laughs> He'd never been to this brother's house. Well, the brother's house was, uh, was the house of a retired uh, Christian minister who Ted Patrick, he had, he had deprogrammed their nephew. So he was using their house. And so Steve said, look, what's the address? I'll get it on the map here and we'll, we'll go there. So Steve is telling us how to get to the house where he's going to be deprogrammed. De, de, de we laugh about this now. So we get to the house and I say, I have to go to the bathroom. So it was a driveway that went to the back of the house, down the stairs. And uh, Steve followed me, but he didn't come down the stairs. So I lured him down. He came down and the two boys came in after him. I heard the lock click. And there we are, the four of us. And I said, Steve, these boys are here to talk to you about the Moody's. Oh, wow. Uh, it's the first time and the last time I ever lied to my son. Okay. That's how I lured him there. And he got very mad and I stomped up and down. Oh, the old deprogramming story. I should have known. Oh, no. So that night was a long night. But we went to bed and he, uh, Steve, still loved me because uh, it was a cot there. The boy said, you can lay on the cot, Steve. No, he says, I'll share the bed with my dad. So the next day, Ted Patrick showed up and started their deprogramming. And you probably know what deprogramming is. Well, you know, uh, my dad, I think, was an earlier member. And um, he told me a very different story about deprogramming. So I would like to hear what your side is. Okay. Well, all that happened, there's some stories about deprogramming where there was some uh, physical stuff going on. Well, there's no physical stuff going on with Ted Patrick. He just... He had the TV camera and filmed this whole thing. And he uh, started asking questions. That's all he did. And only, only it wasn't even physical. It was forcing verbally. He went through the Bible. Maybe you, you've been through the same things. Uh, there's a, one, one phrase in the Bible where it says, uh, Mary went to the house of Zechariah. I don't know if you've ever been exposed to that or not. Sounds familiar, but no, um, our our experiences are vastly different. But I am curious. And, and Moon teaches: See, Mary had sex with Zachariah. That's mm. how Jesus became. So Ted Patrick said to Steve, "What does it say? Mary went to the house of Zion, and then she had to, what? What does it say? Mary went to the house of Zion, and then she. What else does it say? Well, that's all it says." Does it say she had sex with Zachariah? No, but does it say it? Does it say Zachariah was home? No. He could have been out of town on business or something, right, Steve? 
I guess, that that's the kind of thing he did with various phrases in the Bible. Kept telling him, what does it say? Does it say any more than what it says? That's all it says. And how can you say that it says that when it doesn't say that? It's that kind of thing he did all the way through. And Ted knew his, he knew what Moon taught and he knew which verses taught. So he was that kind of thing. Then we broke for lunch. The other thing was he was not fed very well, Steve. They had peanut butter and jelly sandwiches most of the time in Denver. And he was on the street selling flowers. Did you ever sell flowers on the street? Yes. No? Yes, yes. You did? Okay. That's what he was doing. And uh, and it only had, it was cold. This is November in Denver. And it was snow on the ground. And uh, so it was that kind of thing for two days. And then Ted Patrick had to go uh, to another deprogramming. But he said, your son will be coming home in another week. I said, you could, could have fooled me. I said, after he talks to you, Steve says to me, it's very interesting talking to Mr. Patrick, but I'm just as much a loony as I ever was. Oh, okay. So, but then during the interim, he was given information to read. We talked more about it. And uh, uh, I, I mentioned already the, the fact that uh, I said something about Moon. Somebody said, wouldn't it be great to die for Moon? When I said that, I, and he said, yeah, he may be the, the Messiah. And that's when I broke down. That helped the cause. So that's when Steve said, okay, I can't do this to you and mom any longer. I'll go home. Ted Patrick came back. He said, see, I told you he'd be, go- he'd be going home. <laughs> he said, but he says, well, he's right on the brink. If somebody called, they could get him back in right away. So I'm going to send the two boys with you back to California, back to Florida. So Steve, the two boys and I got on the plane. I get kind of choked up. <clears throat> Christmas Eve. 1978, got on a plane, no reservations. We got on a plane somehow and we flew home. And we walked in the back door of my house, Christmas Eve, 1978. That was the happiest Christmas of my, of my life. My wife was here, of course, and my, her mother was here. My mother was here. Steve's brother and sister were here. And, uh, it was, it was great. And uh, <laughs> there's funny parts of it, too, because Steve was always proud of his body. He always worked out. You know, he was on the track team. Well, in the Moonies, he developed a pot belly, eating peanut butter and jelly. So he wanted to run. So he started jogging in the streets, and there's two boys running, trying to keep up with Steve, <laughs> the two boys that came home with us, you know. And... Uh, but uh, they uh, they went home after a week or so because Steve was uh, he was out of it and then he he spoke before at schools around Tampa to uh, in the auditorium when they have uh, what they, they used to call them things and have a not a convention but a meeting of all the all the kids in the auditorium eventually. Uh, 
And uh, he would speak to the boys about his, his uh, experience. And the more he spoke, the more it enforced his, his brain to think, I was taken, I was really taken. I was taken for a fool. And then he went back to college, went to the University of uh, Florida State University in Tallahassee, got his degree. He wrote his final thesis on guess what? All the control? On his experience in ammonia. Wow. And for his thesis, he got not a B, not an A, but an A plus. And he graduated with honors. Look at him go. Yeah. And uh, he, uh, then he was still, well, he had to make up for lost time. So he started going out with girls again and had one after another, making up for lost time. And uh, tried one thing after another. Then he uh, got a car and he drove to California again, well, this time to Los Angeles. And uh, he did various things. One time he said, Dad, uh, I, I want to take a class in massage. And uh, I said, why? He said, well, maybe I want to be a massage therapist. And uh, at that time, we had some savings bonds in his name. I said, I can cash your savings bond. Yeah, okay, let's do it. So we did. And he took the course and he came back to Florida and he uh, applied for the uh, license to be a massage therapist and uh, he got it and he opened up, he became a massage therapist. Wow. He became a very good massage therapist. There's a place in Florida called Doral, which is a, a country club with several golf courses. Many important people went there including Bob Hope. You know who Bob Hope is? I actually don't. Bob Hope? Oh, God. He was a great comedian. Oh, okay. In many movies. He was on radio. He was on TV. He entertained the troops during World War II. He was one of the biggest, greatest comedians the world has ever seen. And he massaged him. And there was another lady, they call her Dr. Ruth. She was a sex therapist. He massaged her. And uh, these are people you never heard of. Anyway, so he did that for a while, massage therapy, and he had, he had a uh, clientele, a lot of, lot of uh, clients massaging, and he was good. And I said, well, it's so great, uh, Steve, that you've got a business now to be a massage therapist. So thank you, Dad, but you know I never wanted to be a massage therapist. I want to be an author. He was a great writer. He is. I think I'm not just saying it because he's my son. He's a good writer. He wrote the book Massage for Dummies. You've seen the line of books, Dummies? Yes. Yes. He wrote the one Massage for Dummy. A lot of people applied to be the author of that book. And he had a lot of competition, but they took him. Awesome. And it's been translated into nine different languages, and it's in version two now. So he gets a little bit of royalty from that. That's amazing. Yeah. So that's uh, his background. And then uh, I guess he went out with a lot of different women, and he met this gal, Ty Gal, 
her name is Achana, A-T-C-H-A-N-A. He met her at her restaurant. She had a, a Thai restaurant. And they got along okay, nothing serious. <clears throat> and he was going out with another girl, and she was staying with him at his pad in uh, Miami. And Achana would bring food from the restaurant to them, you know, to Steve and his girlfriend. Well, with Steve, he'd be going for a girl for a while, for a while. Then this girl would get serious about getting married. Uh, Steve would back away. Achana never did that. Never. She never did that. So Steve said, what's wrong with this girl? She never wants, wants to marry me. What's wrong? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Before you know it. Uh, yeah. He chased her until she caught him. Okay. And that's the happy happy ending of that story. And they got married and they had two boys and I told you about that story. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's my story. Okay. And uh, I had a happy ending that, that, did you happen to click on the link at ICSA for my wife? Yes. I saw that she is a well-spoken leader for education on coercive control. I was very impressed. Yeah. Yeah. She helped. We helped so many people in our house here. We had so many people come and we were helping them get their loved ones out of cults. And so many people. And uh, she, uh, she was, and before this all happened, she was kind of shy. She would, uh, we have six people and she was afraid to speak up. After this happened, she was on radio, TV, and she spoke in front of uh, clubs like Rotary Clubs yeah. and high schools, churches. She was not afraid to speak before hundreds of people, but thousands of people on TV. And so she just became a wonderful, more wonderful person. She was always a loving, wonderful woman, but now she's outgoing and she's, <laughs> she's lost any uh, of her introvertness. So, uh, yeah, so I set up that, uh, that uh, tuition on the, on the I see yeah. yes. I'm glad you saw that. I'm so impressed with all the work that you have done as a family. I think that your story is very rare from all the deprogramming stories I've heard. Um, from all the first generation I've talked to, a lot of them have strained relationships with their parents. So this is just really great to have a different representation of yeah. how things could have gone and, or, and how things went for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as I say, the thing that got us through the whole thing, the, the real thing that got us through was love. Yeah. The family love. We had strong ties to begin with. Uh, Steve told me a lot of the people he met in the Moonies didn't have the same experience with their families. I don't know what yours was, but. Uh, yeah. I'm just really happy to hear this story it turned out as an empowering one for you and for Steve and your wife. Um, so you guys went through a difficult experience of your son disappearing into the Moonies and lots of 
lots of children disappeared into the Moonies, actually. And the way that they moved him from San Francisco to, to Denver overnight, that's not uncommon. Uh, I would be in a different state within, you know, 24 hours, uh, 12 really? hours as well. Yes, they're very good at transporting and hiding people. It's, it's incredible. That where, where, did you, where did you first join the, the Moonies? Oh, well, my parents joined in the 70s. Um, 70, that's right, yeah. Yes, I think it was 1971 was when my my stepmom joined. Um, 1970, I believe my my mother, my biological mother joined. And then 1973, I think my dad joined. So a lot of the uh, things were a little bit different. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, but basically in cults, the kids that are born into the cult are pretty much for the cult leader, offered to Reverend Moon, during our birth ceremony, we were placed in front of his picture and there's bowing and all sorts of strange things. Um, yeah, yeah, you, you mentioned in, the, uh, in your uh, article that you uh, swore a virginity up until the time you were married and the guy you married had the same oath. Yes. And, uh, and did, you, did you have any kids? Um, so that's a long story. Uh, I guess we could start at the beginning of your questions for that. Okay, I, would, sure. I would love to get into this. The thing that first struck me was those paintings. That's why yeah. I listened at first. I got to tell you, when I saw those paintings, one word struck in my head. Pain. Ah, uh, yeah. I don't know if that's what you were trying to demonstrate, but I, I just felt pain. Oh. Oh, Yeah. Were you a painter in the cult? Is that where you learned it, or was it? Yeah, I could paint. I could. I could do that. Um, but it, like, it didn't matter that I could paint. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a special. It wasn't a special thing. My my family didn't nourish that gift. And, uh, but did you have any education on how to become a painter? Right. So, uh, like I said, I grew up in the cult, and so. Uh, there wasn't really much of a path for painters unless you painted for Reverend Moon. And like, I've been to his palace in Korea and there's people who paint his palace from floor to ceiling. And I'm talking like 30 foot ceilings. Um, so Reverend Moon has like a stock of painters that paint for him, that paint portraits of him in peaceful ways that are published in his books and stuff like that. So the only education I got was I actually met up with one of these artists that worked for the church for about five concentrated months. Oh. And I learned from him and he was a phenomenal painter, was not paid properly um, and was exploited by the church, essentially. So I, I learned from a well-renowned painter in the church. <laughs> okay. That's good to know. Yeah, your, uh, your paintings express to me a lot of emotion and feeling. And like I say, the first thing that the emotion that hit me was pain. Yeah. Have you been, been able to market any of your, your paintings and sell them? Let's go back. So I started, so let's say I graduated high school. I was 18. I did an internship with this mural artist in Maryland where I learned about airbrushing and painting. And um, now it wasn't lucrative enough to actually support a lifestyle. So I quit painting with this mural artist and went to a missionary program for the church. That's when I got labor trafficked officially by the Invocation Church. Um, but we'll fast forward to when I came back from that labor trafficking program. I uh, became homeless again. I just wanted to mention, after I paid for the blessing, became homeless, came back to Maryland, lived in my car, and the mural artist who taught me how to paint 
actually let me sleep on his couch for two weeks while I got my bartending license. Thank you, artist. And then I um, picked up a job as a bartender. Oh, good for you. (laughs) Yeah. And it was because I hit rock bottom. And then I I found uh, bartending very lucrative and a substantial way to pay the bills. Um, I got out. I slowly got introduced to the secular world and realized that people do have souls and that not everybody's evil. And I slowly but surely made my way away from the church. It sounds like being exposed to real people and you get exposed to a lot of real people in a bar. Yeah, you do. Yeah. And and I'm jumping around a lot because I still haven't made a narrative for this story. It's very multi-layered and kind of a lot to process. Um, I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's no way to simplify the whole thing. I I told you my story, but I left out a lot parts too. I'm sure. I'm what, sure. What was your specific year when you got out? Well, after I met my my partner, my blessing partner on the labor trafficking program that I went to, um, uh-huh. and really the whole dynamic in the cult is that the end game is to get all these children, these second generation. Blessed children is what we're called because we were born to yeah. sinless, you know, blood lineage under Reverend Moon's blessing that he did right. to give gave to our parents. And so the entire end game for second generation is to get blessed again under Reverend Moon's blessing oh. um, to propel God's lineage was the whole narrative. So growing up, um, we were all told that that was the purpose of life was to get the blessing and to multiply and have dominion. And, yeah. and become perfect. So you have a bunch of children who are very limited in their worldview. They're very limited in their understanding of, of life. And um, they're all being pushed towards this one goal of getting married. I, I call it marriage trafficking now. I call it. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah. So we're educated in a very narrow worldview. We, we have a very um, strict community and strict guidelines. And I found this person on my labor trafficking program that also wanted to, I mean, we were so devoid of love as well. So it just seemed natural to pair up and get married. That was the course we needed to anyway. So we went to Reverend Moon's blessing in 2010. You went to Reverend Moon's what? His blessing, that wedding, that mass wedding. The mass wedding. Yeah. Yeah. We interchange it. Sorry. It's cult talk. I interchange mass wedding and blessing and marriage. They're all almost the same thing, but they're not, they're totally different. It's just my cult. (laughs) It's my cult filter. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, but, but my question was, was there a year when you say you got, you got out? Right. So because at the end game that that's what the story was leading up to. So the end game is the blessing. That's what yeah. you're told your whole child life. But after the blessing, it's kind of like you get some slack. Now you're a little bit free. Oh, okay. Right. People aren't worried about your virginity anymore. You kind right. of you kind of lost they lost interest in controlling you because they yeah. got you to the end game. And right. and I call it marriage trafficking because you pay for it. I paid four thousand plus dollars for this blessing from Reverend yeah. Me. He yeah. made a profit of $18 million on the wedding that I went to because there was f- over 4,000 people. That's something I didn't know. Yes. That's yes. the reason that there were mass weddings because yes. he made a lot of money. It's people, it's farming. It's people farming, really. Yeah. Because yeah. 
because I I paid what twenty two thousand to attend my my partner did, and then the rings were six hundred. They sell you these garbs, these rings, these scarves, everything. Yeah. If our parents wanted to attend, they had to pay a thousand dollars to sit in the stadium. They were selling seats for a thousand dollars. Hey guys, I needed to put the blessing happened on the 17th and then they had one day of party and then they had a birthday party, Reverend Moon's birthday. And so at the birthday party, the seats were a thousand dollars a seat. And I know for a fact, national leaders went and those were paid for by tithing. So I don't know how much money he made in total, but it was in the millions and I will attach that form for evidence sake to my Instagram, Ren Robot. You can go look at it there. It's all in writing. And also the donation, the $2,000 donation was not a donation. Actually, it was under the guise of course of control that it must be paid. We promised to pay it by a certain date. And I will also put that evidence on my Instagram. Go check it out. So the money you you provided was just a part of the whole pot. There's more money coming in. Because there's 4,000 couples. Times that by two. Times that by all the parents that attended. Sure. It's very much a a, a trafficking experience. I knew that they had mansions. Oh, yeah. Yachts. Yeah. And I remember telling Steve, I said, Steve has got mansions. He's got yachts. He got, uh, I said, Jesus didn't have that. Mm. And of course, the answer is Jesus died. You know, he failed. Boone is, Boone's a real messiah because, yeah. Isn't he, isn't he, he's a messiah. Isn't he entitled to have it's a crock of crap. And, and, and there are people that go missing after these mass weddings. I think there was about 6,000 Japanese women who went missing because you're, you're transporting people across seas over, yeah. over international waters. And so when you go missing willingly, nobody really looks for you. And it's a religious, religious event. So yeah. it's so confusing. There's so much trafficking going on yeah. that it's it's it really needs to be investigated, but it it's going to need more people like me speaking up for it to be uh, investigated further. So I'll just tell my side of it. Basically, what happened is I was farmed, <laughs> is what the way I put it. I you, was, were, you were you were fired. You I was I was farmed like a head of cabbage. Farmed, oh. <laughs> like, okay. And so <laughs> and so after we got blessed, um, nobody really paid attention to what we did anymore. It was yeah. kind of like, well, you're already perfect. This, this yeah. is your, and I was like, but we're not perfect. Like I'm filled with anxiety and turmoil, and and we're not happy. We're good people, but we're not happy, and yeah. we're we're in this framework that just doesn't work. And yeah. so he gave me a way out first. Was um, this man blessing partner? Was this the guy you married? Yes, he was. He was, I think, 19 when I married him. Uh, well, not married. It's not a legal wedding. It's a religious ceremony. Oh. But, Yes. I didn't know that. That's, I think that's how Moon gets away with not getting sued. <laughs> oh, <laughs> because it's a made up religious ceremony. It's all oh gobbledygook. Gosh. All of it's fake. Oh my gosh. I never knew that. <laughs> oh yeah. Doesn't that make it so much worse? <laughs> I mean, oh yeah. <laughs> what, did I tell, what did I tell Steve that? It's all gobbledygook. It's all fake. It's a way a man's spinning a narrative to make a lot of money. And now his family and, and the Family Federation for World Peace is using that because it makes a lot of money with a very low overhead. <laughs> I'm just jotting down notes here. <laughs> oh, oh, my gosh. And this is all my perspective. You know, other people might believe the narrative, but this is what I've come, yeah. come to realize. Well, you were never really married, so... 
Yeah. Did you split up with your your partner? Yes, we did have to sign like an annulment paper with the church through the church and go through multiple pastures and therapy and all this stuff that they wanted. It wasn't therapy. It was like spiritual conditions, which I now call spiritual abuse and still human (laughs) trafficking. Yeah. Yeah. Exploitation. Uh, We weren't happy, but he gave me a way out. And so we broke. And after that ended, I felt like I had no value left in the church because everything was about virginity and my virginity was gone. So yeah. at the age of 22, I was already used goods. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the, the course, the path that they give women to restore themselves, like the course that they give women in the church is a very difficult one of a lot of volunteer work and service and workshops and, and just feeling so shameful and, they, the way they framed it is Eve was the perpetrator of, of sin. Uh, okay. So I bet you pay money for all that too. Oh, yes. You can do forgiveness ceremonies. Oh, it was, it's awful. So at that point, I was already working as a bartender. I was slowly getting exposed to the real world. And I had already done the path and nobody was happy with my effort, even though I gave my entire life to make people proud of my status as a second gen blessed child it was never going to be good enough it wasn't me it wasn't me it was the system and so I shamefully walked away thinking that it was my fault but I just am not good enough to try this again and I don't have it in me to survive this again because I will probably kill myself (laughs) with how controlling and manipulative it was the more I bet the more you talk like this the board emphasizes, it enforces your will and your want to get out and stay out. Yes, definitely. Right? Yes. The more you say something, it reinforces. Because that's what happened with Steve. When he would talk to the kids at school, uh, in, in the, at the auditoriums, every time he talked about it, it reinforced himself. That to, this is, yes, this is really what's happening. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's uh, yeah. Well, that's good. I'm glad you're doing that. And podcasts you're doing, I'm sure, helps a lot too. It does. And I didn't realize that it was uh, active reframing. Like you said, it really helps you solidify who you are when you can use your voice finally after decades. Solidify. Yeah, that's yes. Solidify. <laughs> you can, yeah, I'm finding my identity in a sure. world where, you know, I was a, a gifted painter at eight, but I didn't even know that until I turned yeah. 20. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's amazing uh, what what the power of narrative and storytelling can do to empower so many that have survived situations like this. Oh gee, oh, uh, I have just one more question about painting. The symbol uh, that you showed in the paintings is that a symbol now for the Unification Church? Yes. Um, so that symbol was actually one that Reverend Moon put on the Divine Principle, which is basically his brainwashing book for controlling people. Um, So he put that on, on the divine principle. He also, it's a symbol I grew up with everywhere. It's burned into my mind. That's why I paint it so much, but it was, it's the symbol for the blessing. It's the symbol for the the blessing ring. Everybody wears it on their ring finger when they're married. My parents wore it. Um, My friend's parents wore it. I wore it when I finally got the blessing and I was in a mass wedding ceremony. It's everywhere. It's the it's the writing on the wall, okay. and it's basically like um, a caged bird singing, but like well, singing about the cage. Like in Christianity, the symbol is a cross. Yes, and that was his 
symbol for it. Yeah, the divine principle, I, I remember that because uh, after we got Steve out of the Moonies, every time he would bring up the Moonies, Joan and I would change the subject. And uh, I took Steve to a movies one night. We got out, we're driving home, and uh, he starts talking about the Moonies. I, I started to change the subject. He said, Dad, I want to talk about it. There was a lot of nice people in the Moonies. I said, okay. So we went by a bar. I said, let's go and have a beer. So we did. And we started drinking and he started telling me about the, all the nice people, just like you. Everybody in there is, is a victim. You're a victim of your own dreams. And uh, well, I said, what did, what did the Moon teach from? He said, from the divine principle. I said, Steve, do you ever read the divine principle? He said, no, Dad, have you read the Bible? I said, no, Steve, smarty pants. <laughs> oh, Renee, I read the Bible from cover to cover. And I don't know how what you feel about Christianity or anything, but after I read that book, I became a dedicated agnostic. <laughs> I love it. Oh. I, Oh, boy. I mean, I was brought up in Sunday school. They teach all the good parts, you know. Yeah. Crazy. It just. Anyway. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I, you know what? I would actually like to go more into the symbol of the painting um, because I was thinking about how I paint. I painted in all my paintings. I'm traumatized by it. It means so much more than just a symbol, though, because Reverend Moon put a spin on it. And they teach that spin to children from the time I was born. I knew what that symbol meant. And that in and of itself is the mind cage, the mental trap. That, okay. Yeah. So, so let me go into it just, just to say it won't take long, but I'll explain what that symbol means. So it's a circle in the middle with 12 rays and then a box and then yeah. some lines. It's just a bunch of lines. But yeah. in, in that, he put narrative over narrative over narrative over narrative. So if you tried to break out of one, well, you get stuck in the other layer. So it yeah. was so hard to get out because what he said was God was in the center. That was the sun. And then you have the 12 gates, the 12 the 12 rays represent the 12 disciples of Jesus. So you've got Christianity in there. You've got God in there. Then he said, and the 12 personalities and the 12 lunar months in the calendar. So then you've got Chinese theology and then you've got astrology in there. And then wow. he, and then, yes, I know it gets crazier. And then he goes on to the invisible and the invisible world, which is spirit world and the physical world, which is the, the lines on the outside. And oh. so, and so it's a multi-layered mental trap. So if you're not stuck in the Christianity aspect of it, well, then you got to astrology and if that doesn't work then you got the buddhist part of it so he just like melted a bunch of religions mm -hmm. and if one wasn't good enough well you'll fall back on another so you think you have the truth is ah. is what i thought and that's why it took me so long to break out of that mental theology prison that moon spun yeah. me into and that's yeah. why I, and that's why i paint it because it's garbage <laughs> it's sure. absolute garbage i can see now your yeah, metal trap that, that's that's a good way to describe it the, the way you describe it is yeah yeah you're you're taught what you, you recite all 12 of those very well you, you memorize those because that must have been I would, because at some layers I'd get out and I say, this isn't true. 
this doesn't yeah. work. But yeah. then there was another one. And I was like, well, I like, I'm a Sagittarius. And, <laughs> and like the lunar planets are all, and we would go into this. And we had people in the church that were specialized in all these different things. You know, if something wasn't going right, you could talk to this person and they could explain it in this way. Well, if that didn't work, they'd send you to this person that would read your astral chart. When yeah. I had problems in my blessing, I was literally sent to one of the first generation who wrote up our astral charts and told us what to do. It was like, we always wanted an answer. It was A, B, and it was formula. Everything was, you, there must be a formula for happiness instead yeah. of there, yeah. it, it, everybody had to have an answer. And, and <laughs> Reverend Moon was the asshole who took advantage of everybody's curiosity and kept us locked in a mental mind prison yeah. to do his bidding. Yeah. Yeah. I remember Steve. Steve was only in six months. Good. <laughs> yeah. I would, I'm glad we got him out when we did. But he was already starting to parrot these things. Ask him a question, and you could see he was parroting what he was told to say. And just like yeah. that, that, that phrase in the Bible, the house of Zechariah, he, he knew exactly what the answer was supposed to be. So, yeah, we could see that already happening. Yeah. Oh, boy. But this has really been, I thought I knew a lot about the Moonies, but this is my opening. I thought I knew a lot about cults. Uh, uh, I'm glad I can oh, help. The other thing, I'll, I'll move on to the next section, which is cult, unless you want to talk more about paintings. Oh, um, the, the one thing, the painting that caught your eye, actually, I sold that painting. That was awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good. And and I have learned to market. You asked me earlier in the in the podcast. Oh, yes, yeah, that's right. I didn't <laughs> I didn't get the answer to that. So you sold one? Well, I've I've sold many, yes, but that one sold for a very significant amount to a, a good friend of mine. So I was just oh. wanting to, you know, congratulate myself. But actually, from a very weak foundation of um being exploited in the arts by the church, I've I've come so far where I actually own a tattoo shop and I, I get paid every day to do tattoos and do art. And I actually made a career out of it. So I wanted to say as an inspiration for others, if you have a gift in the church that's been exploited or, or undernourished, it doesn't matter where you start. Just keep your keep your eyes on the goal and you can you can make a life out of it. You say you do tattoos also? Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, the arm and whatever? Everywhere. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My daughter uh, has tattoos on both arms. And uh, she and uh, her brother, my younger brother, uh, have it here in an organization. It's this sort of semi-religious uh, organization. They, it's part Buddhism, part Christianity. They're just lovely. You can imagine how I felt when both of them went into this organization. I, I think Joan and I said, oh, God, here we go again. <laughs> but uh, my youngest son's, at that time, girlfriend said, why don't you come to our organization and tell us about your experience with Steve? I said, really? You want to hear that? Yes. So we did. Joan and I spent the better part of a day and a half telling our experience. By that time, we already had, had developed our presentation. We had slides. We had the whole thing. And after the end of a day and a half, Joan and I could see it was not a cult. They were loving, loving people, really love, 
because they didn't, up front, they didn't say, I love you, like they did in the Moonies. Uh, so since then, every time we've been with those people, it's the same way. They're just very friendly and loving and helpful. Uh, and they just believe in a certain way of, of living, which is to uh, help you become who you really are. This is the best way I can explain it. And because I've seen both Tina and Jim grow in this thing, they both develop new talents. My daughter is a licensed general contractor oh, in wow. the state of Arizona. Yeah. Wow. Jim, from high school, he could do anything. He's the one of my four kids. They're all smart. Jim comes closest to being almost a genius. He really is. And, and being a nice guy on top of that. <laughs> He's had a beard since high school. Oh, wow. And he has a garlic farm now in Canada. Whoa. Yeah. That's in, impressive. Uh, in uh, British Columbia, Canada. A hundred miles north of the USA. <clears throat> 120 acres, I think it is. But it's just one small part of it planted in garlic. He started doing that. And, uh, but the real reason of there is they're developing another branch of their organization. And his wife, Lalita, is the president of the church. They call it a church. And, uh, but they're there to, to do that. And uh, he planted garlic and he helped people. They call him, what a bite, what a get buy some garlic from me, but how do I plant garlic? So he'd tell him how to plant garlic. And he said, wait a minute, I'm gonna, he starts, he's put on two classes every year now. He invites people to his farm and he puts on a class teaching people how to grow garlic. Okay. And he charges them, you know, a little bit of money and they go home. And one year, Jim had a bad crop of garlic. Some worms got in the, it's a tulip, you know, it's a, not a tulip, but a bulb grows underground. Worms ate it. <clears throat> so he had a lot of sales and not enough garlic to sell. So he called these people that he helped train how to grow garlic. Would you sell me your garlic? Sure. They did. So he buys her garlic. He stores it and he turns around and sells it to other people. That's called being a broker. Nice. Hey. Brokers never go broke. Oh, wow. He's a middleman now. Okay, wow. He grows just enough garlic to satisfy the uh, tax break as a farmer, okay? And it's organic garlic, by the way. And uh, so every year, they, the government comes around and checks his garlic, makes sure it's organic. And, uh, and people now are selling him garlic that they grow. And he turns around and sells it, and he's making more, more money because he still puts on the, the, uh, the classes. And he's getting more customers every year to go to the classes. He's getting more people to grow garlic. He's getting more people he can grow, he can buy garlic from. So he's doing very well. He's double, he's triple the size of the farmhouse. Okay, so he's doing well. Steve is doing well. I love how how much uh, 
depth this conversation added with the financial advice and not all churches or religious organizations are cults. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. She's a dense advice organization. Oh, the other thing is uh, you mentioned whom? Yes. Were you were married by him? Yes. He threw water on me. (laughs) He was, I was, (laughs) yeah, I was close enough for him to spit on me. And my God, did he spit a lot. (laughs) He spit? Oh yeah. He spit on us all the time. He would um, talk. And when he talked, he would. would Oh, oh, I think he intentionally did it. He really loved to, to defile his members. It was part of his narcissistic traits. He oh. he would spit on us and then call it a blessing. Um, oh. Like you've been touched by the Messiah. There's rumors going around that the holy wine, and this is a rumor that's going around, but I heard him say this in Korean because I was studying Korean. He says, you guys would bl- do anything I say. You would even drink my semen if I asked you to. That's what he said in one of his senile you'll speeches. Even do, you'll even do what? You, you would drink my semen if I asked you yeah. to. And because he's obsessed with blood lineage and Uh, everyone being of his lineage and the Koreans being superior. There's a lot of weird shit going on. Sorry. Excuse my French. That's all right. I've heard that word before. (laughs) He was, um, so one of his speeches, the last speeches I heard, he was delirious. I think he was fighting pneumonia and he was in his old age. So he was saying all these things that he shouldn't have been saying. And he was saying it in Korean and they pulled him off the stage after he said that, but I heard him and I could understand Korean. And I I was like, wait, that's when some of my cognitive dissonance fractured. And I was like, wait, am I, am I in a cult? (laughs) 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 So there's rumors that he even puts his semen in the holy wine. And that's why he insists everybody drinks it. He even told me to give it to my grandma on Christmas when she wasn't like he would then second gen, we would, the first gen on Halloween would stick Halloween candy and Tootsie Rolls with his holy wine. And I don't know what's in the holy wine, but even sticking candy on, on Halloween and passing that out to unsuspecting people in the malls. And it's criminal. I think it's criminal. Um, so, So all those warnings that they give you, like inspect your candy while the Moonies are the ones spiking it. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> with oh. semen apparently so <laughs> so yeah he would spit on us there's that rumor going around and then there's the stories that we would spike candy and then he was so insistent on the blood lineage and the cleansing of blood lineage and everybody joining his blood lineage and when you think about lineage i mean it's from sperm so yeah. it it's kind of a, a very um twisted yeah. story oh. But yeah, I was close enough for him to spit on me. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Uh, we talked briefly about your parents. Did, uh, did, you mentioned his stepmother. Did, oh, yeah. did your parents? Reverend yeah. Moon picked our parents. Yeah, I remember that. And told him yeah. to make it work. So a lot of these relationships, more than just mine, actually most of them, I would say the majority of these relationships were abusive. And so the kids... Um, we're usually the scapegoat for anger because in the cult, there's this euphoric, I call it a euphoria, like farming, like the cult will give parents this really big high. And then when they go home, they're super depressed. And so there's yeah, this yeah. dysregulation. And so in, in front of everybody at the cult, everybody's happy, perfect, ideal family. But then when you go home, all these people are taking their anger out on 
what can they take their anger out on? And they take it out on their kids and, and each yeah. other. So that's these, it's, it's the cycle of euphoria in the cult. Yeah. It's all, it's all so, fake. And- so evidently you're, your folks separated or divorced? Yes, yes, because it was absolutely toxic. Um, and m- many of these relationships were, but my family yeah. was one of the only that actually divorced because divorce yeah. was the ultimate, you know, breaking of the blessing. You're defiling Reverend Moon's choice yeah. and he's yeah. the Messiah. So so that kind of cast me out onto the outer rings of the did you, hierarchy. Did you, did you stay with your mother then? She didn't want to be a mom, but she believed in Reverend Moon. So. Oh. So she had children, but she had absolutely no emotional attachment to her children. She only saw Reverend Moon. Like she literally offered us to Reverend Moon. When my dad took me when I was seven. Your um, dad, you went with your dad? Yeah, I, I lived with my dad. Because my dad he said, if I left you with your mom, you'd, you'd end up dead. Because the abuse was so bad. And, and we don't have to go into that. But it was true. So yeah. when, when me and my three brothers went to live with my father... <laughs> So this is a very common thing where uh, people have children and they don't actually have any attachment to them Um, because the Messiah told you who to marry. The Messiah told you how many kids to have the Messiah. It's, it's all a formula. You think if you follow the formula, you'll be happy, but all of these people aren't happy. They follow, they're following the formula. They're following the next step. They're following the next trail, but they're not happy. It's not working because it's gobbledygook and it's a cult, but The kids are the ones that suffer. So my dad took all four kids because I guess out of obligation and my mom, it didn't bother her. So I haven't seen her in decades. (laughs) Um, You explained that pretty well. She was more married to Moon than she was to father. Yes. You you went to live with your father? Yes. And he, um, because he had four kids and uh, he did. He He had four Yes, the four of us. He had four of us and he, he he was still in the cult. And so he dived deeper into the cult to survive. He didn't know how to be emotionally present for raising four children. So he threw us to the cult and let the cult raise us. So we moved into one of the compounds in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which is called University of Bridgeport. And we lived in a dorm where I basically never saw my dad and the it, the cult raised me. Um, oh, boy. So that's how I got so stuck. More and more amazing how you got out, Renee. Jeez, <laughs> you had so much going against you, and you, you got I, out. I did, yeah. I got out after years. Um, that's a big story, but I mean, it all makes sense, and it's taken me a lot of reflection to oh, not man. take it so personally because I used to think it was my fault and so many other things, but it's taken me a lot of reflection just and, and on looking at the history and, and where they were to look at it. Yeah. In that article in the ICSA uh, magazine, you didn't mention moon one time. Was that on purpose? Actually, I did mention him, but from a cult perspective. So you probably didn't even notice that I called him true father. Oh, Okay. I, I missed that. Yeah, you, you must have. Yes, because yeah, that was yeah. the only that was the only name I knew him by. It, yeah, uh, was he was my true father. There was no yeah. other. There okay. was yeah. So that's another layer for parents not taking accountability. They were all pawns to have children for true father. We literally I, called him. I that. remember he died in 2012. I think it was. Yes. And you got married in 2010. Yes. Oh, good. Blessing. <laughs> yeah, there was a severe pressure to go to his last blessing. 
Um, yeah. it, w- it was like the Messiah is going to die. Would you, would you be selfish if Jesus was here to give you his blessing? Would, even if you weren't ready to get married, wouldn't you get it? And, <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, <laughs> okay. Oh boy. Yeah. yeah. Why not? And uh, is, is, there a, is there a leader of the cult now? There are so many leaders of the cult now. So, so many, many, you said? Oh, yeah. So More many. than one? Yes. How about, his, how about his wife? Is she still? Jahan? Yeah, is she leading a faction also? She absolutely is. Probably the most, yeah, she is. The most successful one, I would say. The last thing I heard was that all the labor trafficking organizations, the missionary programs, give her millions of dollars a year. Oh gosh! Where these kids are living in vans, selling roses and and laser prints and whatever else on the streets, and they think they're raising money for God's providence. Wow! Oh. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, you might not be ready for all this. Uh, a daughter of Moon was named by Moon to head the church in the USA. Yeah, USA is a thing called Love and Life Mis- Ministries. Yes. That's a good question. I'm glad you bring that up. There is a lot a lot to say about that. And who do they uh, worship now? Here's my personal theory. Um, so Love and Life Ministries actually had a terrible collapse. And that was one of the last ministries that I went to before I left the church. Oh, okay. Um, so the collapse was that there was, you have to think, you have to remember, Injun Moon, Reverend Moon's daughter, was forced to marry Bohi Pak's son. Bohi Pak was a KCIA agent that worked with Reverend Moon to spread the theology of the divine principle. It's an interesting marriage. I think it's more political. But anyways, Reverend Moon made his daughter marry Bohi Pak's son, James Pak. They owned a multi-million dollar company called Paradigm Hedge Fund. Paradigm Hedge Fund? Yeah, it was a Paradigm Hedge Fund, which they later sold to Joe and Hunter Biden. Anyways, they owned this and they got squandered out of it. By some lawsuits with with the Bidens, they were in a deficit. Engine and and uh, James Park were in a big deficit. Their finances were awful, and that's when Reverend Moon said, "Hey, you want to lead the United States?" <laughs> <laughs> so that's what happened. Then they started Love and Life Ministries. Engine got really involved with the youth, but actually, she got really involved with labor trafficking the youth, I think, to supplement their income. Because that's when she started Generation Peace Academy. She took over that, started labor trafficking these kids to sell stuff while her husband, James Pock, started working with Vima and established MLM. And that's a multi-million dollar business as well, where he got second generation like me to go door to door selling his energy drinks and supplements. So that was their real agenda. Like, yes, they were leading Love and Life Ministries, for face value. But if you look at what they actually did with their finances and with the children in the church, they exploited and labor trafficked hundreds. But I can tell you one thing about the collapse of Love and Life Ministry was Injun Moon had an affair with the guitar player, got pregnant. So it totally destroyed the theology because that's the absolute sin. You can't do that as a reverend leader of the country. She had it all in secret. She pulled a Kylie Jenner. She had the baby in secret, but then somebody in the family leaked the birth certificate of this illegitimate child and boom, the church exploded. All the second generation that were exploited and labor trafficked by this family left the church. Yes, because we're like, this is all bullshit. And (laughs) some of them didn't. Um, Some of them are still there. So I hope they get their ears on this podcast because I'm laying it out. As simply like I see it, you can yeah. research all of this stuff. It's sure. all out there. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> and and I left. I left. That was the last. That was the last last ministry I ever believed in. And I yeah. fled to Texas, where I could be safe from the exploitive nature okay. of the moons. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Uh, now we get down to the last section, which is personal. The first question you have answered uh, extremely well. How were you able to escape? Did you receive assistance? Did, did ICSA help you anywhere along the line? So I got out of the cult 10 years ago. Okay. I didn't realize that I was under coercive control and the illusion of choice until three years ago. Three years ago. Mm-hmm. Wow. You're a newbie. I am a newbie. Yes. All of this language is new to me. And I'm pra- practicing telling my story so that I can undo a lot of the frameworks that I yeah. still carry from being in a cult. And ICSA has been a big part of that um, because they promote so much education and language. I would say getting the language has been a huge, huge help. Yeah. Getting the language? Getting familiar with the language. Like I, I didn't even understand about course of control or like John Jalalich said, like illusion of choice, things like this, like these words. Okay. I thought I had just failed like a really intense religion my whole yeah. life. I thought I just walked away from something that I just wasn't good at. Like oh. <laughs> You felt like it was your fault. Huh? I thought it was my fault. And, yeah. What happens with, with just almost everybody that gets out of a cult. It's all my fault. That's the way they train you. That's the way they make you think. Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't stick around with God's people. You couldn't, you weren't yeah. good enough to walk with the chosen kind of thing. Right. right. Same thing over and over. And, and Moonies, I'm not, I just one. And Joan and I were exposed to a lot of different cults. Uh, there was one called Children of God. They were trained to be prostitutes. Yes. The children, yeah. And we, we had one of those ladies in our, helping along to help get out of the, the, she was out already, but she was really very interesting to talk to. Just again, you leave that and and you're, you're turning your back on Jesus. When you're in there, you're a hooker for Jesus. He was a fisherman. He used to hook fish and therefore they were a hooker for Jesus. Oh my gosh. Ridiculous, but that's what they believe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there there were aspects of that in the Unification Church too that still have to be uncovered. There there is a lot of mm. yeah. Well, I think everything else I have under personal, I think you've answered everything else. You think so? Yeah, you have the same list there that I have. I do, I do. Yeah, I think we covered a lot of it. I actually wanted to ask you some questions about your stories when you first opened. Sure. Yeah. So your son hitchhiked to California and actually Berkeley was known as this cultic epicenter. This explosion of cults came out of Berkeley is what my stepmother told me in the seventies. She was there. She saw it all and she ended up with the Moonies. Does he remember any names or the tactic used to get him in? He was, uh, this is after he hitchhiked from uh, Miami to to, uh, San Francisco. And uh, I think he was in the public bathroom washing his hands and some young person came up and started talking to him. And I don't think he remembers the name of that person, but I'll ask him. He had a, a an advisor, if that's the right word, in the, in the movies. He remembers yes. the name of that man 
but that's about it. And I'll ask him about that. So the reason I ask, because in the Moonies, back in the early days, you had to have what was called spiritual children. You had to have witnessed to outsiders and, and converted them to Moonies to get the blessing. Um, so, so my mom is like uh, seven, she has like seven spiritual children. So you can see the spiritual lineage of like who converted who, you know, exactly where first gen came from. It's a really interesting dynamic, but you can kind of trace people's brainwashing back. <laughs> well, he never, Steve never got to the point where he was getting close to uh, having a blessing. He, uh, cause I've asked him. Uh, a couple of times they said, well, what would have happened if I hadn't got you out of the movies? He said, I probably would have been a, in a mass marriage, but he, he never got that close. We got him out before they got him that far along. Yeah. It would have probably been two or three more years until he got yeah, that far. Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions you have for me? Well, I wanted to go back to the deprogrammers too. You said Ted Patrick had a network. I can only imagine how difficult that was in the 70s, 80s, the 70s, correct? 78, 1978. 1978. Yeah, yeah because he didn't have internet like we have now. Um, didn't have, didn't have uh, internet. So, so I find it fascinating that Ted Patrick could keep up with the movements so, of the movie. So it was uh, all by telephone. Yeah. And uh, that was it. That's the communication we had. So that was 1976. So sure, they had computers, but uh, not as advanced as they are today. All the things we did was by telephone. And uh, we were able to get it done by telephone. You know. It cost, cost, by the way, it cost, talking about money, it cost $10,000 to hire Ted Patrick. That's what I was going to bring up, actually. Um Yes, that's what I was going to bring up because the operations he sent he sent men with you. He sent men with you to stay for weeks. Did a lot of a lot of things. So, do you know if there's like a name for the organization or if there's any paper trails? How did he have so much manpower behind him? Well, first of all, when we found out that Steve was in the Modis, when he finally told us what it was, one of the first things we did was go to a uh, bookstore. And I asked the person in the bookstore, do you have any books on cults? And he says, yeah, we have a few. There's one here called Let Our Children Go by Ted Patrick. So we got that book. Oh, wow. That just reinforced what we already could see was happening to our son. And in that book, he went through various cults. And one cult he mentioned was the Unification Church. That's how we got a whole, that's how we found out about Ted Patrick. Then in that book, there were links, people to call. Okay. I think there were phone numbers or something. Or wow. That's how we got linked in with Ted Patrick. Let our children go. Now, all the stories that I've been told are just from my dad, who was unsuccessfully deprogrammed. I know it costs a lot. And his story was more violent. He said he was dragged uh, for days. They abused him. He had to, he finally crawled out of a window and ran and never looked back. And that was kind of the end of his relationship with his parents. Uh, I can imagine. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah. So I've heard two stories that are so vastly different. Um, I think the programming might have served its time back in the 70s before the internet. But I feel like deprogramming now doesn't have a place. 
But it's just really interesting to find out that it was through creating a resource and networking with a book and creating like a, a community for these people. And it only worked for you because you had love at the center and you had a real relationship with your son. And I'm thinking to reach more people these days, which is what you guys do with ICSA, is just giving people education. And yeah, they have a wealth of knowledge, wealth of books and files and films, uh, every, everything with their library. The library is immense. There's all kinds of information, ICSA. And going back to Steve, not being abused. I, I got to be honest, I think it's primarily because Steve was never violent. He was never violent. He never dawned on him to fight his way out of that house where he was being deprogrammed. Right. He did throw a jar of peanut butter at the window. Yeah. He was going to jump out the window, but he, he missed the window. Yeah. There was two boys there and Ted. And so Steve wasn't going to tackle all three. Yeah. And then Ted Patrick left, like I say, to go to another deprogramming, and he came back. While he was gone, the two boys and I were there. So he wasn't about to tackle all, all three of us. He's not violent. Of course, he's not dumb either. Yeah. You know, he would not have won that battle. But he was never violent. But he did throw a jar of peanut butter, and he missed. He hit the wall and uh, broke the jar of peanut butter. That was it. But he, no, he listened. The other thing was, we taught him to be respective, respectful of people. Listen. And he listened to Ted Patrick. He listened. He did not ignore him. He did not make fun of him. He listened. And that was the beginning. Okay. <clears throat> Everybody's different. You know, everybody reacts different. And he was brought up to be respectful of other people. And I'm glad he was. <laughs> That helped. So it could have turned bad, but uh, it didn't. It didn't, no. And you were this there. This is back in, back in the early days of deprogramming. You know, now with ICSA, there was no ICSA. There was some small groups that helped. We formed a, a group called Cult Awareness Network, CAN. With and uh, Joan was president every year. And we would attend the national conventions and we had them all over USA and we kept going on until uh, well Joan and I aged well, as you know I'm 93 now and uh, she was 83 when she passed away and when we got out of the cult business uh, when ICSA came along we get calls and we refer them to ICSA Mike Langoni and ICSA Wow. Yeah. It sounds like um, you have had a lot of experience with different cults, the Moonies. Yeah. Uh, children of God. Children of God. You were yeah. there. Yeah. Is there anything you'd like to say um, to any, most of the people listening are second generation or multi-generation cult escapees? Yeah. Well, when we were involved, it was no 1970s, to my knowledge, there were no second generation people. It was all first generation. I mean, my son was a first generation. Everybody we met was first generation. I mean, the first ones to be in the cult. We never personally met anybody who was second generation back in the 1970s. Oh, wow. Yeah. There might have been, but I just never met any. 
Well, I think the fruits of your labor echo on. Uh, there's so much information exploding about cult awareness and cultic control. And I I think you're legendary. Your wife is legendary in starting it so early uh, yeah. to give give other people the empowerment to to talk out and speak out about these experiences. And I think what you said in the beginning is is extremely important is the more you say something, the more solidified it is in yourself and the more confident. Solidified, that's a good word, solidified. <laughs> yeah, more, it enforces your belief of what you're doing. Yeah, you say something out loud to other people, it, it does that. Yes. And you know, the more you say it, the more you can see the validity of what you're saying. Yeah. And you've, you've defended and represented such a repressed group, like an, a minority, the shunned, the excommunicated, you know, and for so long. And now we're finally, I feel like a lot of people are gaining their confidence that it, it wasn't us that failed the system. It was the system that failed the people. Cults don't work. <laughs> so, Joan used to say, I don't care what you believe in. You can believe in pink elephants. I don't care. <laughs> It's uh, how you were taught to believe in pink elephants. What method did they use to make you believe in pink elephants? That's what we're against. Yeah. yeah. Because there's all kinds of religions in the world and beliefs. Some are better than others, I think. And some are worse than others. <laughs> there's some religions that I, I don't agree with. But... Uh, uh, and then, you know, let's face it, many of us are born into a religion. Now, I'm a second generation Methodist, and people say, you were Methodist? Your name's Capoliti. You should be Catholic. <laughs> I said, I had never been Catholic. When my mother came to America with her family, she was four years old. And uh, of course, the family was Catholic, it was her mother, her father, her sister and her brother. They came to USA through Ellis Island. Have you heard of Ellis Island? Yes. That's where they came through. And uh, my, her, my mom's father, my grandfather, said that he had, <laughs> my, my grandfather with a sharp cookie, he said uh, his uh, father-in-law lives in Philadelphia. That's where they're going to live. And he knew if you say, there's somebody I'm, I'm going to go live with. They say, okay, go. No questions asked. Father-in-law wasn't in Philadelphia. Father-in-law was probably dead or <laughs> back in Italy. So he went to Philadelphia and he got a job. And that's where my mother grew up. And of course, she was sent to Catholic school. And the kids there were mostly Irish who had just come over before the Italians. And the Irish people called my mother every name in the book. Wop, Dago, Greaser, everything. And she come home four years old, you know, crying. And uh, she had a, a girlfriend where she lived in Philadelphia. The girlfriend said, why don't you come to my school? It's a Methodist school and we won't call you names. So my mother asked her mother, her mother, my grandmother, is okay. She said, okay, just go to school. <laughs> so she went to the Methodist school and she was treated just like everybody else. So guess what? She grew up Methodist. And when she married my dad, she had my brother and me. We grew up Methodist, you know. 
And that's what I did. Uh, I went to Sunday school, Methodist church. I joined the youth fellowship at night on Sunday night with the young kids, the high school kids. I was a uh, uh, counselor at youth camps during the summer, all that stuff. And uh, so I was a Methodist. And I was a Methodist, probably a, not a very good Methodist, but a Methodist until Steve went in the Moonies. And I, then I read the whole Bible. Then I became a confirmed agnostic. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> I have a question. You know, just looking at your life path where you went through, you know, Sunday school, counselor, youth leadership, all these Methodist programs, because I, I feel like I did the same thing, but I view my stuff as a cult. What's the difference? Yeah, Jesus was uh, the Messiah. And, uh, but all he taught was, his main thing he taught was love. You know, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And you cannot love your neighbor unless you're happy with yourself. Okay, that's the main thing it's all based on, in my opinion. So, first of all, with that guide guideline, it's pretty hard to go wrong. Although, there are people that go off the deep end, uh, just like with any organization. There's right and left, right? I was lucky to be in the middle. My mother was never that much. She believed in Jesus and she prayed every night, but it was never like I was forced to believe this. I was never brainwashed. Right. Uh, I was taught Bible stories about Jesus in Sunday school, but I never felt forced to believe this. And there was never, in my experience, that was never a big part of my life growing up. Uh, my dad was a once Catholic. He went to church on Easter. That was a Catholic church. Gotcha. You know, one of the biggest things I'm getting is there wasn't like a punishments if you didn't want to do it is did you have punishments if you didn't want to go to no, sunday school no. okay no if i didn't want to go to sunday school we went of course i was little you know at that time and uh and i just went i didn't argue about it I just and i enjoyed it because every story they told was a nice story and i went to church which i didn't enjoy that much because uh, most of the people went to sleep <laughs> So, but I, then I went to youth fellowship and I really enjoyed that. It was fun. There was some religion thrown in, but we danced and we went to parties and uh, Methodist school is sort of, Methodist church is sort of, uh, I want to say, they're not as strict as some other Protestant religions. Uh, so it was fun, especially the youth fellowship thing because uh, and I fell in love with my, I had my first uh, crush with a girl at the youth fellowship. We went to high school together. He's a redhead and uh, had a crush on her. We went out together for a time. So, no, it was, it was good times. And uh, I never was punished for anything. No. Oh. Uh, and I didn't want to be punished because I enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. But in the in the in the movies, you had just the opposite experience as far as love. Oh, it was awful. And, 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 and being having a crush on people, right? I was so dissociated with my first crush because it was so evil. I didn't realize he was my first crush until like twelve <laughs> years later. 
Okay. <laughs> Sometimes we get fooled. Yeah. Yeah. We demonize our emotions. So yeah. uh, we grew uh, up very separate from our emotions. We yeah. had to, to survive, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But Have I answered your question? Yes. Yeah. I, I feel like there's a huge uh, gap in autonomy and just not knowing yourself and getting to learn yourself and not, not punishing yourself for being human is yeah. maybe the biggest takeaway. So, yeah, I think yeah, you're right. Yeah, punishment was a, is a big part of cults. Yeah. Yeah. Word uh-huh. go, you're punished for not thinking correctly. You're punished for not acting correctly. Feeling. Thinking, you know, that, that covers everything. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate this conversation. I hope you got uh, all that you wanted out of. Uh, oh yeah, much more. I, I I knew that money was a big thing. Oh yeah. Moon, but I didn't realize how many more different ways he got the money. Oh, I could go on about the empire. I think it's in the trillions now. Last I looked, it was in the billions. Of uh, Hak Jahan, his wife is a billionaire. If you, uh, if you, yeah, yeah, and they have mo- endless children who are also millionaires. Um, so it's a lot of money. It's a lot of exploitation, labor trafficking, yeah. human trafficking. I, I don't even know where all these people disappeared to. There's people that disappear into the Moonies, and yeah. I have no idea what they do. Every day, Steve and Jim and I do a, a Zoom. Oh. We do a Zoom together and we work on crypto quotes you know you know what they are Qu- yeah. crypto quotes what's yeah. that crypto quotes is they take a, a quote or a quip and they code it every letter change it stands for like an a equals a b all a's will equal b etc and you have to decode it and uh, yeah just look up crypto quotes and you'll yeah. see them. yeah so oh, i copy okay. them I put them on an email, and uh, they enter it into a spreadsheet, uh, and then we decode it from there. Okay, this isn't cryptocurrency. This is like a a newspaper. Is it a game? No, it's just what I said. It's a word. Okay, gotcha. That's really cool. It's a quotation. (laughs) I think that was a generational gap we call uh, crypto cryptocurrency like bitcoin yeah, this has nothing to do with cryptocurrency <laughs> i got that just Crypto- imagine the, just imagine taking the word black and b would be c l would be g okay so you go in and you decode the thing oh okay i got decode, you decode, like they had in the during the war they still have it they codes they said all kinds of information back and forth through the CIA in code. Well, I was wondering how you're so sharp. You're 93 years old. You look like you're in your 60s and you're as sharp as a tack. So everybody do your work. Yeah. I'm very lucky. Lucky <laughs> I have something left up here. There's so much. So the older I got, more and more of my friends get Alzheimer's. Yeah. And I just went to a uh, celebration of life, which is, uh, you know, you know what that is. It's yeah. saying goodbye to somebody, a, a dear friend, a lady, a wife of a good friend. And so many of my friends have, that's the way they've died. And it's, it's called a long goodbye. If you're married to somebody and they slowly, their brain goes away, just goes away. And it's just, it's terrible. And I tell my kids, I lost another old friend. I lost another old friend. 
So my kids gave me wide, very wise advice. Dad, you got to get younger friends. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what I've been doing. uh, Yeah. And uh, my wife, Joan, did a very smart thing one time. She said, uh, you know, Cap, everybody, everybody calls me Cap. C-A-P for my last name since high school. Uh, and she called me Cap, you know. If I were to die before she did, would it be okay if she sought male companionship? I said, sure, I'm dead. I said, how about if you go first? Yeah, she said, go for it, you know. And so Joan passed away in, uh, eight years ago. She was 2014, April of 2014. So after a couple of years of grieving, uh, I worked up enough nerve to uh, ask a lady out. She said, yes. Well, I took her out a few times. That didn't work out. I took another lady out. That worked out. So I asked another lady out. and That worked out. And nobody said no yet, Renee. Nobody said no yet. So I'm still asking. <laughs> and they're still saying yes. Oh, no. So they're not the right one until they say no? <laughs> <laughs> or no, you tell them? No, yet. So, uh, yeah. So, so everybody listening gets a 93, and then you can date as much as you want. <laughs> yeah. They, know, they all know they're safe for the guy that's 93. <laughs> yeah, that, that's where the real game is, y'all, in the 90s. I, uh, I still drive, but I just drive to the uh, grocery store and doctors. I don't take any long trips. And I joined the uh, Unitarian Church, not the Unification Church, <laughs> the Unitarian Church. Have you heard about the Unitarian Church? Not too much. I have heard about it, but I don't know what their theology is. Unitarian Universalist Church, UU. And it's a uh, religion that's been around for a long time. Thomas Jefferson was a member of the church. John Adams was a member of the church the second and third presidents of the United States. And uh, it's a very free-thinking thing. It's just based on love and respecting each other's wishes and uh, helping each other. It's a democratic organization. We vote on everything. The minister provides advice, but does not run the church. The congregation runs the church. The president is supposed to do the bidding of the congregation, right? (laughs) Okay, that doesn't work out that way with real politics, but in our church, that's the way it works out. We had a minister, uh, the lady, she was a very good minister as far as preaching. She had good sermons. She brought a lot of people to the church. Then she started to run the church and she's no longer with us. Oh, okay. So we don't go with dictators. Okay. I have a question. You're a democratic organization. Are you allowed, do, do they encourage you to vote for the same person on all spectrums or you can vote whoever you want? We can vote for anybody in the church. We want to vote. Yeah. We vote for the people on the board of directors and then they get together and they vote for the president and vice president and so forth. Of, of the church, the president of the vice church. president. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I'm not talking about voting. I'm talking about just in the church. They don't tell us how to vote politically. Okay, I see what you're saying. That's up to each one of us. We 
follow the democratic, not the democratic party principle, democracy. Uh -huh. Democracy. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I got it now. Okay. Yeah. So there's yeah. no divine, there's nobody that's um, claiming divine divinity and uh, a hierarchy of if you want to believe in one you can believe in one that's up to you that's no. a personal thing no but i like church, that better church no we don't say you must believe in this god or that man no okay here I it is it. here it is and you can believe whatever you want in fact when you join the church you go through some classes and the the uh the class last thing you do with the last class is what is your uh Theocracy. What is your theocracy? What do you believe? And I said, I believe in people that are good people. And do I believe in a hereafter? No, I don't. I hope there is one, but I don't think there is one. I'd like to see my dead wife again, but uh, I don't believe in it. And I don't think I'll be criticized or killed again. <laughs> I don't believe in it. And, uh, and a few other things like that. So, and most people believe the same way uh, with some, uh, there's some atheists in the church. I, I'm an agnostic because I don't know what started this whole thing. Why are there people? Why is there a universe? There's the Big Bang Theory, which is a theory, okay? So, I don't know. Uh, and it's, all I can believe is in science. And I, I can see what I can see. And I can see what's happening, and I can see that there is a universe. How it happened, I don't know. Yeah. Big Bang, okay. They've proven that it's still expanding, still expanding. So maybe there is something to Big Bang. And I think um, having a group that you can, you know, have connection with is very important, especially for healthy aging. Yeah. But that's really interesting. I'm glad that you have an organization that you can find connection with without it being too dogmatic and, um, you know, brainwashing like the Moonies. Oh, yeah. well, there's, no, <laughs> there's no brainwashing. There's no, just, uh, and uh, I am now chairman of the CARE Committee. The CARE Committee, uh, we look after people who are sick or who are just experiencing a death in the family, or just uh, had a uh, birth of a grandchild. That's, we look at the happy parts too. We had uh, we would meet once a month, and yesterday we we select people in the church directory to contact every month. We, people we know are having a problem, or maybe they just live alone like I do. So we do that, and uh, recently a woman lost her husband. He'd been sick for a long time, so we're going to contact him, send a card, contact her, send her a card, and uh, I'm going to call her and uh, and help. There's another lady whose husband I uh, I got to know pretty well, and he and I used to have lunch together. He died, and she's been very withdrawn. I call her. She's not doing anything. She's not reaching out. After Joan died, I knew I, I could not wither up and die, okay? So I reached out. My son, Jim, put me in touch with a psychologist who specialized in grieving. And uh, he recommended a book she wrote. So I went online and I didn't, 
by accident, I got the DVD, <laughs> and which is even better than the book. <laughs> talking to an audience about what she has found out about grieving and ways to combat it, uh, how to get through it, because it's, everybody's going to go through grieving. I mean, 57 years with a woman, that's, that's older than you are, Renee. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, it was tough. It was tough. My kids helped me too, even though they live all over creation. So, and one of the things I found out in, the, in that book, that DVD, was guess what? What? That tuition aid thing I set up at ICSA. Establish something, a memorial of some kind wow. that will go on and on that will help other people. Wow. Her name, my Joan, her name is going on. Every time somebody gets money from that, not every time, but most times when people get money from that fund, they send me an email thanking me. And uh, I uh, that, that brings Joan back to life for me. It seems like Joan lives on. And I told my kids about it. So when I'm gone, they will keep funding it. Wow. Now I'm funding it now and uh, they will they will fund it. So beautiful. Yeah. So that's one thing I, I found. It helped a lot. Make a, a, a living memorial for your yeah. loved one so they never yeah. get yeah. forgotten and can yeah. contribute to helping humanity. That is a huge step for grieving, but it sounds very productive and yeah very effective the lady said there's about three three kinds people everybody grieves differently and she uh, did a lot of study on this she said there's three groups <clears throat> one group never goes does anything and they just tough it out and they live through it the second group does nothing and they wind up having a nervous breakdown or they commit suicide the third group takes action of some kind. And that's what I did. Setting up that fund was one thing I did. The other thing I did was get younger friends. I joined the Unitarian Church. There's younger people. I met new, make new friends. I'm still making new friends. I still uh, meet with uh, guys I knew from uh, work. We have lunch, have dinner twice a month at a the golf club that I belong to. I don't play golf anymore, but I'm a member of the club. And uh, so it's that kind of thing. You got to stay in society. You got to keep going. Otherwise, you kill yourself. You commit suicide. Yeah, I feel like that's very relevant for even the exit point of leaving a cult is you have to make your new identity. And grieving is a huge part of that. So take yeah, take action. Right. Yeah. Make new yeah. friends. Yeah. Do you, do you miss some of the people that you knew? Yes, absolutely. I have no idea where ha half, more than half of these people are. I yeah. will probably never see them again. Yeah, and Steve was the same way. He missed some of the people because they basically nice people, good yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. Fell victims and trapped, as you say. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like what you said with the second type of people, they let it eat them alive and they commit suicide. Actually, I think the statistics for suicidal multi-generational cult members are, are pretty high. And I don't know if there's any proper studies done, but a lot of the people I know have either dealt with suicidal ideation, myself included, or followed through with it. 
Yeah. So I think it's really important to address the steps of grieving and what you can do. And it, do you, would you happen to know the name of this book or author or DVD, if you could remember? If not, I think the wisdom that you, you've shared right now is sufficient as well. I happen to have ah. her name. Yeah, Dr. Ann Kaiser Stearns. Okay. Living Through Personal Crisis. Or watch it. Watch the DVD. Okay. You got the name? Yes, Living Through Personal Crisis. Okay. Well, you've given me so much of your time. Is there anything you'd like to say before we wrap up? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to tell uh, Mike Langoni we had a great time, two and a half hours talking, and uh, uh, I'm sure you have a lot of help you could give people too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I feel so inspired by your story and your wife's. Uh, I personally, I feel like I resonate with your wife's story, just finding her voice from being an introvert to helping so many people. Yeah. And this is just the beginning of my journey. I'm, I'm only 32. And I just realized I was in a cult three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing great. You're doing great. Yeah. Yeah. And being able you to talk, talk with you is an honor. Yeah, talking to you was also an honor. <laughs> you've done a lot of this on your own, and uh, and uh, you should be admired for that. That's really great. Yeah, uh, well. I wish you all the happiness with you and your husband, and uh, I hope to talk to you again sometime. Of course, that would be wonderful. Oh, you have my number, you have my email, you know my face. Can I ask you what part of Texas you're in? Yes, I'm in West Texas. So I went to the remote area where you could never find anybody again. <laughs> yes, I know. I didn't wear sexes. Say no more. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I am. Yeah, yeah uh, very good. Very good. <laughs> okay. Okay. I loved it. It was really great. I think your story of the deprogramming is Oh, epic. It's amazing that you remember it so clearly and with so many details. Um, it's very hard to get these stories these days uh, yeah. because so many first generation members are fall, fallen ill or don't want to talk about these things. So it's amazing that you could open up and share that story with us. Yeah. Okay. Any feedback your son has, or if your son would like to speak with me, or if he wants to share his story in yeah. Boonville, that would be <laughs> more than welcome. Okay. Hey guys, and there you have it. I wrapped this up with Bob Capolini, the legend. And I just want to make it clear, you know, deprogramming, this is a sensitive topic for many first generation. Uh, for my own personal family, it's a very traumatic experience. My dad, um, was traumatized severely from that and it caused the great schism in my family that we have now um, my uncle also in response to my dad joining the church became a deprogrammer um, and after a few questionable instances he also left deprogramming so i'm in no way condoning kidnapping but it's very very important to talk about the history so that we can understand our first generation and their experience and how they got to where they are now. So I applaud Bob for coming on this podcast and speaking so openly about his experience. I think it is a very valuable resource and a glimpse into the 70s. So 
I hope you enjoyed this episode. I understand that it could possibly be re-traumatizing if you have had uh, your own parents or you have had personal experiences with deprogramming. So take some time to decompress all of the things that we talked about. Take care of your health. Take care of your well-being. And we will talk again soon.